My name is Liam Daly and welcome to University and Everything in Between, the podcast that's all about great topics, great guests and great questions. Um, I've got a really good episode planned this week. It's episode three and I thought why not try and kick it off as good as I can. So I'm joined with Jay Foreman who is a stand-up comedian, musician and YouTuber who runs a successful series as well as many others called Map Map Men, which I'm a particular fan of. and I'm very excited to be joined with him for this episode. So thank you very much, Jay, for joining me. Thank you, Liam, for having me here. Hello. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, before we kick this off, um, some people watching who are a bit more keen-eyed than most might notice that I've recently had a haircut. And I thought I'd regale you with the with the tale of this haircut trip. Because as you know, we're sort of starting to come out of lockdown now. And um, during the more sort of intense period of lockdown, I decided, you know what? My hair's getting a bit long, so I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a go. You know what? I'm gonna give it a go. So I, I bought myself a pair of razors, and uh, I tried to cut my own hair. Um, I'm not gonna lie; it didn't go that badly. I was surprised. Um, I didn't touch the top because I don't. I don't feel like you can get away with touching the top when you don't have any experience of cutting hair. Um, but I didn't realize that it probably wasn't as good as I thought it was until I went to the barber three days ago. And within about five seconds of sitting down, he immediately knew that I'd cut my own hair. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to be like, I wanted to like play it off kind of cool and just be like, yeah, I wanted to try and, you know, learn a new skill and, and you know, tr- try something new. But I literally just sat there and just went, yeah, I cut my own hair. And I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed about it. it was, Cutting it hair was... is one of those skills that you only realize how much skill it takes until you try it yourself. Oh, why definitely. there is such thing as barber college. Definitely. It was, uh, those, those guys are actually like massively underrated and, and women, of course, um, massively underrated. And oh, I was smiling from cheek to cheek when I got my hair cut. It was amazing. Um, but yes, I still anyway. haven't been for a haircut since lockdown started. I think I've missed what would have been maybe three or four haircuts. And as a result, my hair looks incredibly silly. I, I can do this now. I can, <laughs> I have to it's, duck right down in frame so that you can see how very high long. my hair goes up when I put it up. It's very long. The, I mean, this as well. Oh. But I mean, I was going to mention this um, because obviously you're sort of part of a cohort of YouTubers that came out of Uni of York, like um, Matt Gray, Tom Scott, yourself. And you all have quite iconic hair, if you know what I mean. Like it hasn't changed across maybe When 12, you say we're part 12. of a, a cohort of YouTubers, like I think what you mean there in that specific case is that we all literally graduated on the same day from the same university. Yes. <laughs> That's Maybe exactly there is something I mean. about York Uni that you know means that something special will happen to your hair if you go on YouTube. I, I never imagined that the three of us had any kind of hair thing in common. It's it's. I just I just noticed that it hadn't changed very much over the last twelve years, and I just you know it. I found it quite interesting. But you do have sort of that iconic hair look. Like Tom's had quite long hair, and then it's gone a bit shorter, and then you know so you, iconic that it changes every few years. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it's quite, it's quite common actually. Um, but yeah, let's get back on to what the main topic about what this podcast is about, this episode. I've got quite haircuts. a lot of, I've got, yeah, haircuts. <laughs> I've got quite a lot of um, interesting topics that I want to talk about. We're going to be talking about URY, what it was like when Jay was at uni um, and what it's like now. I want to talk about a little bit to do with his musical comedy um, as well as his stand-up and the, and linking that a little bit of the importance of student opportunities um, which I'm excited to talk about and I've also planned a little special segment where as long as the technology works I'm going to get Jay to hopefully criticize my filmmaking work um, because I thought it might be a fun little 
uh, segment to have him watch a video that I recently produced in lockdown with a bunch of mates um, and and see what he thinks about it. So that could that could be something that we get an interesting reaction out of. Um, so I'm definitely going to be putting myself in the firing line with that, but hopefully it goes well. And I mean, it might be useful if you're thinking about doing filmmaking or getting into YouTube. There might be some interesting, you know, advice or tips or criticism that you might come out with post watching the video. Um, but in terms of useful insight, I thought I might kick it off by talking about the student opportunities because you recently did uh, were invited to do a talk about YouTube success at the YouTube Opportunities Festival, which is hosted by uh, the Student Radio Association and NASTA, I believe it's pronounced. Was uh, did you did you have a good time doing that? Was that fun? Yeah, it was great fun for me. It was a big nostalgia fest because when I was a student at York Uni, um, when I was working at <clears throat> working, when I was having fun at YSTV. Um, I remember we were always trying to get the approval of and to please the people from NASTA. Like, hey, if you work hard enough on this TV show, we could win a NASTA. Oh, hey, imagine when we go to the big NASTA event, you know, they might like this. So it was great to yeah. 12 years later get them to ask me to take part in a thing. So that still hasn't gone away, that respect and admiration. Oh, the National Student Television Awards. Wow. If I impressed them, then I could go on to a proper career. It, it, that feeling is still there. I can assure you that. But did it feel did it feel quite full circle then, like in 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 the sense that you'd been invited back to to give talks to current students who are who are you know having that same experience of looking towards getting one of those awards? Did it feel quite? Yeah, pleasant? it was nice for me to relive the olden days and to sort of. I was under quite a lot of pressure to impart wisdom because I think. You know, that I've managed to turn that uh, TV nonsense from URY and YSTV into a career. I think a lot of that was down to right place, right time and good luck. And it's not necessarily a repeatable experiment. Yeah. And, but despite that, people were, you know, saying, hey, we've decided to name your talk YouTube success with a capital S. How is it done? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't I still don't think I'm an authority on it, but it was fun nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I watched the I watched the talk. Could you maybe give like a, a little synopsis about some of the bits of advice that you gave that, that really stuck out or things that maybe people thought that's something that I didn't think of? Because there was a few bits about, you know, you, you write scripts and things and you do a lot of pre-planning and sometimes these projects can span like years and years and years. Do, do you, did you have any, you know, really like key advice that you, that you, that you think would work? Well, I blabbered on for a good 10 to 15 minutes because luckily um, they asked me to sum up how do you go about uh, writing, producing, editing and filming a video. And it so happens that I had already written a piece for uh, another publication about how I do that. So I just yeah. sort of read it out. As for key highlights, I think um, <clears throat> the fact that I wish I'd known from the beginning and the thing that I've learned the hard way, which I think is probably the most useful thing, is that when you're writing a script, even if the script is only to be used by yourself or just you and your friends, even if it's like a small thing that no one else needs to understand, it is still worth formatting it properly. And it yeah. is still worth making sure that all of these stage directions and instructions are absolutely idiot proof. And the reason for that is when you're out filming something and when you're battling with the sun going in and out and noisy lorries going past and worrying about where you've parked the car and trying to remember your lines and all of the massive stresses associated with filming, your instructions have to be absolutely bulletproof and idiot-proof. Otherwise, you are going to get things wrong and you are going to miss things. So yeah. that's something that we learned the hard way is that there is a reason for you know, formatting conventions and there's a reason that everything has to be seemingly extremely overthought out. And it turns out you can never overthink 
filming because it's it's really stressful. It is. Um, I'll give you a quick story and see if you've got any any in return. Um, I was doing a production that I was directing for my second year film and we were filming inside of a boxing gym. And I'd previously agreed with the manager of the boxing gym that I had it for the whole day. But he hadn't um, conveyed that to a, a group of people that were coming in to do some training. So mid-shot, this boxing coach just waltzes in <laughs> and stops <laughs> and then just looks around the room at this entire team of people with cameras and actors and, and you know, pretending to box, basically. And I could tell that he was, like, completely just shocked. But what was the biggest power move I think I've ever seen anyone make is instead of just packing up and going home, they decided to have the boxing session out in the car park <laughs> whilst we were filming inside and just complete power move, just like, if we can't use the boxing gym, then we'll do it in the car park. And it was raining. There was puddles everywhere. I was also, like, you don't mess with people that run boxing gyms. They're the toughest people in the business. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of intimidating because I went out to, you know, try and ease tensions and they were all kitted up in their boxing stuff. And I was like, I'm going to go back and get someone to just, you know, <laughs> come with me. <laughs> Because I just felt a bit intimidated. But have you had similar situations when you're out doing productions of like people walking into shots or like? Oh, know? all the time. I mean, the person that ruins my shots the most often is me when I forget my lines and I make silly mistakes. But, That's fair um, enough. I think the second biggest enemy after myself is the sun. It's uh, it sounds quite dull, but one of the most frustrating things is when it's a glorious sunny day. Because what that means is if the sun goes in halfway through a shot, suddenly everything gets darker. You don't realize until you start holding a camera and trying to make movies just how brilliant human eyes are at making everything look perfect and making everything look the same. Yeah. Uh, because your own human eyes are really fantastic at doing brightness adjusting, color correction, but the camera is not. And so you have to care about things like the direction that the sunlight's in and, you know, you sometimes have to hold up a great big white disc to make sure that the light is reflected oh, yeah, I've on seen, your face. I've seen those, yeah. You don't need to do that when you have conversations with people. So <laughs> human eyes are amazing and human cameras are not. I know. Imagine how, um, thinking of that, imagine how they shot 1917, you know, the first World War movie, being that it was all outside. Have you seen the behind the scenes for that? Uh, no, but that was incredible. Like That was such fun to watch because you knew that what you were watching... There's no secret that it was colorized afterwards mm. and, you know, they've stabilized and, you know, added bits in all over the place. But it takes maybe two seconds to get over that. And you don't mind that what you're watching isn't necessarily what happened. Those weren't the real sounds. They may well not have been the real colors. And by the way, throw in the fact that that footage is mostly propaganda, which is why they're smiling all the time. Yeah. Um, but it's still incredible. It still feels more real than watching the undoctored very jerky, shaky black and white footage. Something exactly. they said in, I watched on Disney Plus, the making of Frozen 2, which goes on for eight long episodes, but it's fantastic if you like behind the scenes making of stuff. And they said that at Disney, we don't try to make things realistic, we try to make them believable. And that is a brilliant distinction. Believable yeah. is more important than realistic. And I think that applies to 1917. I've just yeah, realized definitely. we're talking about two different films. I was talking about the <laughs> Peter Jackson one, where they recreated World War Two all this time. I've seen, I've seen both, so it's it's absolutely fine. Um, I've seen the, I've seen the one that people. You know that none of what I said applied to the thing you were talking about. <laughs> but I mean, the, the you know the idea remains the same. Like I've seen, I've seen the Peter Jackson one where he takes all of the uh, old footage and you know revamps it at sixty frames per second and hand paints every frame and it looks fantastic and it's all like super realistic to the point where it almost doesn't look real anymore and it's like. 
it's, it's quite and yet odd. It, it still feels more like the black and white footage that you can imagine really being there, which I guess is the purpose of that film. Yeah. And also, now that I think about it, the point that you were making about the film 1917 and difficult to film outdoors is absolutely nothing to do with the Peter Jackson film <laughs> about the footage from 1917. I mean, the, I have watched the behind-the-scenes footage for the 1917 film um, by Sam Mendes, and apparently they had to literally... They could only shoot certain parts of the scenes in full, you know, daylight. So if a cloud would go over even even a tiny bit of the sun, they'd have to stop and wait. It might be five minutes, it might be ten minutes, it might be half an hour. And they couldn't start filming again until the sunlight was out again. Um, and apparently it took ages to, to get it, you know, get it exactly right. I'm getting the shivers just thinking about it because that's what it's like with us when we're filming. I mean, obviously we haven't got a massive crew with loads of extras filming a, a war movie. You know, we're just filming me walking towards a camera outside a canal. But it, it was incredibly annoying spending the whole afternoon waiting for the sun to either stay in or stay out. Yeah, I can preferably imagine. Out because when the sun is, actually no, preferably in because when the sun is out and you have to be well lit to be seen, the sun goes right in your eyes. And I've, I, I've got a massive squint on every time I've got the sun <laughs> right on me. It's horrible. You've got to actively think like, keep eyes open, keep eyes open, look at the camera. That must be uh, intense for sure. But um, I just wanted to circle back to talk about student societies and, and media again um, after that little, t after that tangent. <laughs> what were what were the extent of some of the student opportunities through the media societies? Because I was interested when you were there, um, what the sort of extent of those opportunities in general or in the media ones, whatever you had experience with um, when you when you were studying at York. Because because I'm aware that there was quite a there was quite a good chancellor at the time called greg dyke who was the ex-director general of the bbc i mean you can tell me you can tell me more about that but greg dyke being uh, well he was the ex like you said um ex-director general of the bbc and so he was very um clued up on media stuff and he saw it as a very important thing to focus on which may have been the reason why york uni which at the time was one of the smallest universities in the country had a really really was good it? scene for student media there were two student newspapers. I don't know if you still have two, but in our day, there was Vision and News. Yes, we do. I've even Wow, we it's have been more so now. long that I just stumbled over how to pronounce news. It's because odd, isn't it? Because <laughs> when I first discovered it, is it, is it Nows? Nows News? <laughs> Turns nows. out it's news. Of course it yeah, is. It's news. a weak pun. Anyway, there were two student newspapers. There was a student magazine. There was URY, which was one of the very first student radio stations in the country, YSTV. Um, and there was also the Filmmaking Society, which when I joined was called uh, yeah. the Cinematography Society. Oh, wow. um, and in, in those days, <laughs> those things were not connected to an actual department. There was no TFTV department in those days because there no. was no head at least. Um, and most people who were in things like YSTV and Filmmaking SOC and URY, they were studying something that was entirely unrelated. I, for example, was studying French and linguistics, but it turns out that university helped me in my career a lot more through those societies and through those opportunities to have a little microcosm of how the media works, little practice round. That helped me more in my career than my actual degree. Yeah. Do you remember, do you remember things that Greg Dyke specifically did with student media groups? Was it, you know... No, getting... the only thing that he specifically did that I remember was uh, when he gave his speeches as vice-chancellor, he'd sort of mutter things like, oh, and by the way, you are wise doing a good job. We just sort of assumed that he had something behind the scenes to do with the fact that we had such an unusually strong media presence. But on the other hand, it may have had absolutely nothing to do with him because URY and YSTV have both been around for decades before he came along. Yeah. 
his job perhaps was to make sure that they stayed. I actually, I think I've got a very vague memory that is probably based on absolutely nothing and isn't true that YSTV was at one point under threat of closure or they were going to be, uh, they were going to have to move out of Goodrick and go somewhere else and it got saved. And that oh, may or may not have had something to do with Greg Dyke, but don't quote me on any of that because that might have been a, a really dull dream. Well, URY is kind of under threat of closure at the minute um, because, you know, the building that it exists in, well, it's the shed. We all lo- know and love it. Even even after 12 years of graduating, we all know and love it. Um, but it's apparently under threat of being knocked down because it's reached the limit of its expectancy. Uh, what's, you know, the word, um, the limit of its, you know, use uh, as a building. Well, as long so as it's-, it's rebuilt somewhere, I mean, you know, even people that love URY don't necessarily love that very small ramshackle little shack. As long as there is still a URY after that building is, you know, destroyed for asbestos reasons, that's not such a terrible thing. I hope not. No, but I'm, I'm going to be, I mean, it will be a bit of a shame because it's just had the renovation. And I'm going to be showing you the photos of the sort of, not exactly before and after, but like previous years versus how it looks now. Um, which The four photos will be in my head. And then the after photos hopefully will contrast strongly enough that I go, wow, look what you've done with the place. That should be the case. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty impressive, um, it's a pretty impressive renovation. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm just interested to find out how you, because obviously you went on to the Student Opportunities Festival and it was a really great talk. Um, I think it's interesting to see perhaps from your perspective how student opportunities and student media is still just as important now as it was back when you were doing it. Do you, do, you, do you still believe in the importance of student opportunities from, from the way you Absolutely. are now? If you want to work in the media, um, you know, if you approach a company and it says on your CV, I got stuck in and I have had experience doing vision mixing, camera operating, writing scripts, being on camera, radio, you know, if you can show that you've done that through something like Wise TV or URY, you have a massive boost. And when you actually get to work with people that work in proper TV, They've all done this sort of thing. Like this is what the proper training ground is. And I guess what might have changed since I was a student is that there are now a lot more media courses where you can actually study um, a media degree. And yeah. what I don't know too much about is whether that makes you more qualified than someone who's done YSTV or URY as a sort of hobby alongside your so-called proper degree, which is how I did it. Um, but the fact that these things exist is still a wonderful thing. And if you want to work in TV, then do it. And in, in fact, Perhaps more importantly, even if you don't want to eventually work in TV, you just want to have a go while you're a student, like, oh my God, take that opportunity. Where it's else so are you ever going to get to have that kind of fun and try it out? And also, perhaps even more importantly, let's say you know, you've just come tumbling out of school and you think you want to work in TV and radio and media, try it out. That's where you find out you don't want to do it. Exactly. It's much better to find out it's not for you when you're playing around as a student and you can afford to make mistakes and it doesn't bloody cost you anything either. Do it. Exactly. I could not have said it better myself, I don't think. Um, I, I kind of have two different perspectives on it for sure because I know people who, as you say, um, didn't study anything to do with film and TV and learnt it very much from just going to societies and experiencing it that way. And then I've got it from my own perspective of I kind of do both. Like I'm doing it as a degree and I'm also doing it in societies. And across the board, generally, I'd say both are just as successful because, I mean, this guy who was my stick when I moved in to help me move in, um, he became a bit of a mentor towards me with radio, encouraged me to start doing radio. And uh, he's gone on to do a... um, 
a three-hour show on BBC Radio 1 because he, he won the best um, uh, chart show award at the Student Radio Awards. And then now he's working a, as a producer on BBC Radio 5 Live. And it's like, you know, he did, he did uh, politics, I believe. Um, and, the, and, he, and he was doing um, lots of correspondence work at um, the, uh, what's it called, Parliament in London. Um, but now he's gone on to do B, uh, BBC Radio 5 Live and all that sort of thing. And he was very much a mentor for me when I was, when he was at university with me. Um, but it was, it was always interesting how he didn't actually study film and TV production or, or radio. Even he was just, he was just working in URY. And well, yeah. there you go. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you, I wanted to ask this about yourself. Do you attribute sort of any of your current, like you, you shy away from the word success, I can tell. Um, but do you attribute any of that to your experiences during university with student media? Because um, just as a little anecdote, I um, I was speaking to a guy who works with Noose, um, the newspaper that was there when you were when you were at uni, and they interviewed Anthony um, Anthony Horowitz, um, who's a great author, and I've read loads of his books when I was growing up. But they interviewed him and they asked him a very similar question about whether his experience at working at the student newspapers had contributed anything towards his future success and writing ability. And I can I can quote you what he said because I've copied it down here. And his response was rather brutal with not an awful lot, to be honest. And I wondered what your what your sort of take on it was. Well, everyone's got a different experience. I mean, um, in my case, I think those societies really did help me. So I think I'm better at doing voiceovers because I worked at URY for a while. And I'm better at knowing how cameras work because I worked at YSTV for a while. So in my case, it was useful. But in Anthony Horowitz's case, maybe not. I'm not necessarily saying if you join these societies, you are guaranteed it's going to help you in your career. And to be fair, the, um, when it comes to the um, newspapers at York Uni, I wasn't as involved with them. I say wasn't as involved. I wasn't involved wasn't with them involved at all. At all. <laughs> um, so I don't know too much about how that works. I imagine it's very similar. And I'm sure you'll come across a lot of journalists who say that, you know, joining student societies really has helped them out. But if you so happen to be Anthony Horowitz, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, it was quite a, a brutal answer. But I'm glad, I'm glad you, we've got a little bit of you know, a diverse opinion from people who've gone on to be quite successful after you. What you need now is someone who's sort of somewhere in between Anthony Horowitz and me who says, yeah, I guess they helped a little bit. I've, I, th- I mean, I've got a few names written down of people who've gone on to, to be quite successful um, because I did a bit of research about the kind of people. So I want to try and, I want to try and figure out who those people might be. So I mean people who uh, graduated from York Uni. Yes. And went on. So the names that I've got written down is Tom Scott, Matt Gray, Anthony Horowitz, and Harry Enfield, who I didn't, who I didn't know. Was... I feel like Tom Scott and Matt Gray don't count, not because they're not successful. They are very successful, but they're friends of mine who graduated in the same year. So it seems odd to think of them as these mysterious sort of uh, old success stories from the before time, the long, long ago, like Harry but do you, Enfield. But do you see yourself as part of that, in a way? Do you, do you, do you, do you feel like you belong on that pedestal or do, you, or do you feel just when you when you look at what you do day to day you're like kind of like yeah it's 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 a hobby it's it's just a bit of fun it's you know well it's be- because my career it turns out has been made up of all the things that I learned at York and it turns out that it wasn't my degree but my hobbies that I turned into what I do for a living i guess yes it does it does feel like um i suppose i belong in that category of people you know 
who York has helped. And Tom and I were in the same societies and we used to like, the reason we knew each other is because we used to run into each other at things like YSTV and URY. So yeah, yeah we are of the same, um, I'm going to use the word, ilk. I mean, I loved doing a bit, when I was doing the research for this episode, I loved looking back at some of the stuff that you two had been involved with. Is there anything that really stands out that you that you did whilst you were either, you know, in the uh, York Uni or, or within the few years after you graduated that you really enjoyed collaborating him on, on him with, you know, whether it be like a silly song or... Yeah, know, one of the silliest of... things, I don't know if it's still up there on uh, YSTV's archives, um, we had a, I don't know if you still do it at York, we used to have a end of year music festival called Woodstock imaginatively named and it used Very to take place at Vanbra Bowl and I don't know if Vanbra Bowl is still there and they'd set up a stage and then uh, in front of a you know a big crowd by our standards of people you'd have uh, bands from Battle of the Bands you'd have um, solo performers from the various uh, bars all around campus and then um, I went on to sing my funny songs <laughs> and I was joined by a society that almost definitely doesn't exist anymore called Dog Sock Dog Sock uh, it was a society dedicated to the life and work of Douglas Adams, which is, uh, I'm, I'm hope they wouldn't mind me describing this as nerd sock. <laughs> if you were just a little bit nerdy and geeky and possibly a bit socially awkward, this was a fantastic society where you could all be friends together. And they um, came and joined me on stage to sort of uh, dance around in one of my songs. And I wasn't told about it. I was just told they were going to join me on stage, but I wasn't told what they were going to do. So I sang my song um, called I Am The Procrastinator, which was a song that has gone massively out of date about how I get nothing done because I spend all my time on MSN Messenger. And the members of Dogsock, of which the president was Tom Scott, were dancing behind me dressed as the icons for Facebook and MSN Messenger and then oh, having wow. a fight behind me. That must have been quite a shock. <laughs> I, I wasn't actually able to see it because I was sat at the front playing my guitar and I was occasionally turning around to, wait, what are they <laughs> just doing? Like, just and like, I, what's did, going I didn't on? see the whole thing until I watched it back on Wise TV later. So that, oh, really? that's a standout memory for me, I guess. Yeah, I can imagine that would be. I hope to God that's still on the uh, the archives for Wise TV. I might have to... It was for a time on Tom Scott's channel and then we both decided, yeah, we should, we should delete that. It, it doesn't look good for either of us. <laughs> no. We're not going to be getting many job opportunities if people find that. Yeah. That's quite funny, though. Um, what was that thing you mentioned just then about YSTV? It was. It sounds like a sort of on-demand service that you, that you... It was like YSTV Watch or something on... You used to be able to go onto YSTV's website and then through an um, elaborate series of clicks, you'd be able to find old programs. Oh. I can only assume that it's been updated now and it's a lot more streamlined now and actually sort of resembles a catch-up service now. But in, in those days, it was uh, a bunch of files and you had to decide whether you wanted it in real player format or um, QuickTime format. Oh, wow. It does sound pretty, it does sound a bit janky. I haven't, the problem is when you, when you, when you, when you aren't in these groups and you're sort of on the, the edges, as it were, like you're not a member, you, you are aware of them and you know they film things because they film the boxing night and things. It can seem quite intimidating trying to get involved, if you know what I mean. It can yeah, seem I'll tell you what always shocked me. When I first joined YSTV, like I was like day one, like, yes, I definitely want to do this. And I turned up and then there's all these people there that have been there not for that long. Like they're only one year above you. And yet they seem to have the expertise of proper professionals like where did they learn this like they started at the same place i did and yet these people then know all the terms and 
what's kind of fascinating is that that knowledge has been passed down to them by um, previous members of YSTV yeah. dating way back to 1967. There's an unbroken chain of people passing this information on. Um, and that, that's where the knowledge that eventually goes to proper big TV companies comes from. Mm. But it, it has. was really intimidating. Like you, you turn up and how are these people experts I in know. their spare time? It still is. But it, it, that, that sort of transference of information still happens and it still has to happen because there was a case in URY where that chain was broken ever so slightly in one of the departments. And so the next head didn't have any of the right information to continue that role. And it was like very obvious when, you know, there's this new person who's never got, you know, never done that sort of thing before, hasn't received that information from the last one and it didn't carry over as well. Um, it was it was quite an you know it does reveal in a way how intense these 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 roles are and how and how you know you know academic they can almost be in the in the in how much information you have to retain and know and I always felt that. bad that I was like a whore to several societies and I was never like a proper bona fide get really stuck in member of yeah. any one of them I think in all of the societies that I was involved in there were these core members who lived and breathed it and ran the thing. And I was just sort of like hopping around, trying my hand at all of them. I think I think there's definitely, a, there's, as you've done, there's definitely a, a sort of like a good level to be in that. Like you can you can gain a lot of experiences doing them all, and you can gain a lot of experiences focusing very heavily on one. So it's just whatever you you feel comfortable with. I reckon when you're getting involved with these societies, and just finding out what works for you. I mean, you've said it already. Like it's a great opportunity to just. You know, find what works and find you know what's exciting and interesting. And you don't. Something have to. I found quite a lot of fun was the fact that the university societies act like a little microcosm of the real world. So, Definitely. for example, there was one evening I was taking part in Battle of the Bands. I used to be in a band in my uh, second year at uni, and on that night we performed our gig, and you know we were surrounded by all the other campus bands. And then after it, we got interviewed by you know the student magazine and then by news <laughs> and then URY came and talked to us and then Wise TV came and talked to us and it was like it's a little really it's, fun game of pretend. It where is. Where we're all having our own little mini society where we're all sort of we're pretending we've got a TV station and a radio station, but actually pretend is an unfair word because these things were real and you know there was actually a printed newspaper that you could read a review of your band in the next day. Exactly. So it's a little sandbox. It is. It is very like. Out and make mistakes. Yeah, it's a it's a very closed system in a way. Like it can you can you can experience these events like Bansock, and I mean I'm involved with Bansock quite a lot as well. And you get the newspapers coming in, and and URY as well, still do interviews and still talk to people at the bands, and and then it all sort of becomes this big event. And it's like it's it's great to see. And I think if maybe after you graduate you don't get involved with it that much, it can be a sort of like. I didn't realize how good it was at the time, you know, sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it is like sort of thinking back on it, the numbers don't add up. Why are these societies so alarmingly professional when there's just a tiny number of people running them and yeah. an even tiny number of people that listen to them? But yeah, it, it is remarkable how good these experiences are. It's, yeah, it's definitely the passion. I think the, a lot of people that join these, these groups have just a tremendous amount of passion and drive. And I mean, I've, I've met a lot of people um, that do these societies and that have graduated and done these societies and so often they go on to work in professional you know environments you know whether it's radio or tv or film it's it's very commonplace I, i've found and and it feels good that it that you know we're part of a legacy of a university that provides that 
And I'm York always was always good at punching above its weight. You know, it had yeah. fantastic societies given how small it is. And I guess what's changed now is that after I left, they built Heslington East and the university is, I think, more than double in size. So those media departments are still very good, but are they still punching? I guess exactly. it doesn't matter. No, I suppose not. But it's an interesting thing to think about anyway. Um, but speaking in terms of people that are quite, you know, successful and popular after university there was a recent um series of honorary graduations in 2019 and you are familiar with a guy called mark addy i i would hope he's 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 a guy he's uh he is he was in the first few seasons of game of thrones i believe um before he was killed off i can't i'm not i'm not entirely sure what character he was um because i game of thrones i've never seen it either <laughs> I watched one episode and then I was like, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> that's what happened to me. I saw the first episode and I went, ah, it's not my cup of tea. No, it, I mean, you, you you probably know exactly what's in the first episode. And if you've, you've seen it, you know what it's in the first episode. And it wasn't really for me. So I was like, yeah, I'm okay. I thought I'd show you this funny picture. Um, this is going to be the first test of if this technology works. Um, I'm going to show you this funny picture of Mark Addy at his graduation ceremony with my lecturer in the background looking rather miffed. Can you see that? Um, right. That's his face there. That's Mark Addy. Is it the man that looks a bit like um, Eddie Large holding the scroll? So Mark Addy's that one. And then my lecturer is in the background looking rather <laughs> befuddled. <laughs> I thought it was quite funny. I don't but... recognize either of these people, but uh, the man holding the scroll looks like Eddie Large and the man at the back clapping looks like Victor Spinetti. I don't know who either of those people are. <laughs> Google them. They look like them. <laughs> Do they? I might have to say that to uh, my lecturer when I see him next. But yeah, I found that funny because I think on that day, my lecturer wasn't too fussed about the fact that Mark Addy was coming to get his honorary graduation. Um, so I think he was a little bit uh, miffed and not interested, but I found that quite funny. I mean, we've talked a little bit. We've talked a little bit about your collaborations with Tom and you know some of the some of the really funny ones that happened with that. Is I wanted to talk a little bit about YouTube as well before before I, you know, delve into some of the more uni-related topics. And this, you know, I want to take it from a positive perspective, but also try and find out some of the things that maybe isn't talked about too much. And, and we'll have to see what sort of, you know, perspective you can provide on that. But, like, in terms of, like, YouTube fame, is there a sort of, like, almost, I, I say this with inverted commas, like, dark side to it? And, and maybe that isn't talked about as much or, you know, that people don't realize when they may be getting into it. Well, there's, there's a couple of mild irritations, but like, it's important to say that I think 99.99999% of having lots of views on YouTube and being paid for what you love doing is a fantastic thing. And I, I wouldn't change it for all the cups of tea in the kitchen, but um, it does mean that you kind of have to change how you talk on social media because like um, in the olden days, when I had, you know, my followers were just some friends of mine and a few extra people. It would be great fun to say something that is deliberately fucking stupid, yeah. provocative and awful and just your opinion. But then when it changes into an extremely crowded room full of nerds who say, I think you'll find, or uh, people who can get easily upset, it changes how you talk. And it means you've got to sort of hold back a bit, um, which is a very small, mild irritation, but more than worth it in exchange for I'm paid for what I love to do. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a very positive outlook, um, and I, I respect that. So I think the best analogy I can think of is it's like, imagine you're having a party with your friends, and then the doorbell goes, and it's loads and loads and loads of extra people. And at first, you're like, oh, yay, loads more people. And then it's actually crowded and hard to move, and like you can't find your friends anymore. 
it's um, that's the only negative I can think of for you know like having apparently once you go above thirty thousand, you are officially considered an influencer, and anything oh, you wow. say might be considered either deliberately provocative or advertising. So I think you know that's when it officially changes, uh, and that is a like I keep saying, it's only a minor irritation in exchange for what's actually a wonderful thing that I'm very lucky to have. Yeah, it seems like a it seems like a good experience to 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 go through anyway. Do you do do you go to any of the sort of established conventions around YouTube? The whether the meetups or, or the 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 big you know events that take place. No, I've not been to one of those yet, but um, I'm considering going to one because for the next series of Mac Men, uh, Mark and I have decided for the first time uh, to sell merchandise. So maybe now we have a good reason to go to one of those. I don't know if that's something that you know appeals to a lot of people you know going to these youtube conventions but i mean it, it certainly has an audience but you uh did you did, you put out something on you on uh, twitter about you're getting some merchandise done was that was that something that you weren't sure whether people actually wanted or, or you oh, know yeah. i mean the reason it's very hard for me to judge myself is because i personally i would never dream of buying merchandise from a youtuber I've, I've already got a pencil case thank you very much but i need to accept the fact that there are people out there that will buy it and therefore it makes financial sense to offer it to them if, if people want it. Yeah. And also, it's, gonna, it's all going to be ethically produced as far as we hope. Oh, that's a good thing. I mean, on this podcast as well, I'm going to be talking to people who are big advocates for sustainability and veganism, and I'm excited to have those conversations with those people because that's ultimately what I want this podcast to be about, you know, finding out all the different ways of living as well as, you know, the different experiences with different kinds of people in different backgrounds. So it's... Uh, I, I'm I'm certainly learning a lot from from speaking to you and speaking to all these different people about you know what's important nowadays more than ever um and it's it's great i'm learning a lot which is good um circling quickly back before we move on to a bit more about URY, um i just wanted to show you now finally some of these photos um because obviously you are i mean this this podcast is uh coming <laughs> becoming a huge plug for 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 radio and student radio but i mean i'm i'm perfectly fine with that um because it has been such a massive you know experience so far and i've only been at university for two years and hopefully talking to you will my aim is hopefully talking to you for this episode will encourage someone watching this or listening to this to go out of their way and try one of these societies um but now i thought i would try and show you what it looks like now because it is quite exciting um we were working very hard on so these photos here is what it looked like in 1970 um obviously this is not when you were there um of course where does but... the 1996 come from on the the title of this photo oh it's 1996 that's probably because it was resaved on a computer as Studio 2 1996. It's in a folder called 1960 or 1970 on our archive, so it should be from 1960. Well, looking at the computer on the left, I think it's more likely that this photo really is from 1996 because it I doubt you can have it like that in the 70s. So those reel-to-reels, uh, I mean, we all know that it takes a very long time for technology to change in a studio. So that doesn't necessarily mean that this photo was taken in the year that those reel-to-reels were invented. So we have to That's look for the newest thing. The newest thing by far is, is the computer on the computer, left, yeah. although it's using a five and a half inch floppy, it is. which 
it looks to me like late 80s, which again, it takes a long time for studios to change. I think that 1996 in the title of the file is correct. I think that's, yeah. And also look at the quality of the photo. It looks like a photo from, I'm reasonably sure that that is from 1996. I, th- I think you're right. I think this photo is in the wrong place on our drive and I've been, I've been fooled into thinking it wasn't. What, we got some I, other I might in. be wrong. I'm happy for a URY historian to come along and prove me wrong and say, no, no, by, by 1996, we'd replaced it with also, ah, there's a CD. There's no way it was the 70s. Yeah, the, this one's a close-up of the desk, um, which is extremely analog with all of the PPM meters at the, at the back there. Um, analog, and, but for the CD on the left-hand side. Yeah, but for the CD. But they probably were playing that from a discman that plugged in with a little audio jack. Yeah. And it's, are those eight tracks? Or are those some sort of tape that I, some tape format that I don't recognize? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Just, no, they're just normal tapes. They're just stacked sideways. Yeah, yeah. they're tapes. They're regular tapes. It's, it's interesting to look back nonetheless. Um, but we're getting, I think the photos do gradually get, now this is another one from, uh, see all the CD. Look at that monitor. Look at that logo. Ah, look at that one. It looks like go uh, up to the top left where the yellow URY logo Oh yeah, on. there I see it. It looks like steel piping. What a fantastic That's design. That's great design. Yeah. There's so many and of look, those. The monitor has a black background with only green so it's green and black monitor. Yeah. That's fantastic. I That's, bet that hurts if you stare at it for more than 10 seconds. I'd suspect so. But yeah, I remember like a lot of these, a lot of these vinyls and like CDs and stuff still are still in, uh, still in URY. It's... Yeah. Where's the turntable? I can't see a record player in there. I can okay, only I, see tapes. So this one is much more recent and I don't know who that is. I'll probably blur his face out. Um, but th- this is when this was probably early. Yeah, this is probably how you remember it. I think I remember that desk and those microphones. Yeah, the memories are coming back now. I couldn't tell you exactly what year this is, but I'm reasonably convinced that in 2006, it still looked like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, the next photos I have are from the new renovation. So this is what it looks like now. Oh, it's, wow. It looks a lot more professional, as you That's can tell. That's snazzy. Yeah. It's very nice. Who funded this? So, yeah, I was going to give you a bit of context while we look through them as well. So, the university held a project that was called 40K, and it was basically all of the student societies in the university could apply for £40,000 to spend on upgrades or anything to their society. Uh, yeah, so that, so if whoever won it got the full 40000 Um and URY put in what I am told is a pretty good pitch. And because this was, this was early before I really joined. And this is the other studio. As you can see, it's pretty fantastic. That and, is fantastic. And suddenly I see what you mean about how much of a shame it would be to have to destroy the buildings. Because that, they've done a really nice job. And if it turns yeah. out it's trapped in a condemned asbestos shell, that would be awful. Yeah. That's why hopefully that won't happen. But as I say, that's a, a possibility for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm guessing from the angle, is that what we used to call studio two? Yes, I believe so. This one is, see, when I was there, it, I think it started to phase out. It became studio red and studio blue. So I believe studio blue was studio two and studio, studio red was studio one. Um, that's what, I, that's what I think it was, but yeah, that's what URY looks like now. So as you can see, like, as you said, 
Yeah. It certainly has changed quite a lot. And people, especially new uh, new members coming to user societies, we've seen a massive increase in the diversity and range of people coming to use these studios. Um, you know, wh whether they get massively involved in radio at all, it's useful for podcasts, it's useful for, you know, like shooting a video or doing uh, theater work with, you know, radio, um, you know, spoken word, like theater productions and things. Um, it's just seeing like a massive range of, of use, which is really exciting. Um, and hopefully, hopefully this podcast will transition into being able to use those studios before I graduate because it gets a bit more of a, of a, you know, more podcast, more traditional podcast look to it. But I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about your music career now, sort of in that realm of, of radio and, and, and what's happened in terms of your experience of music at university. You mentioned a little bit about how you were a member of Battle of the Bands, and I found that really exciting because I've competed and hosted a Battle of the Bands. Oh, wow. And it, was, it, was it, it a fun experience for you going through, going through doing Battle of the Bands? Did you enjoy it? It was great fun. So the thing that I eventually turned into a career was when I was doing my solo stuff. So I was playing funny songs on guitar in the little uh, the bars around campus. But then um, on the side, an entirely separate thing, I was also a member of a band called The Love Apples. And we still have a MySpace, myspace.com forward slash the love apples. But they deleted all our songs. Um, uh, and that was great fun because, again, it was just a way of getting involved in all of the various fun nights there were, meeting people, playing bass and singing, backing vocals, all my favorite things. Yeah. It's a great way to meet people. Did you enjoy, um, I was going to ask, is there any of them recorded on YSTV still? If, if you do, you remember? Yeah, if you, I mean, I don't know if there are keyword searches on the archives, but if you search the Love Apples, if there are keyword searches, then you should find them because we appeared on uh, YSTV filmed Woodstock when we performed there. We also appeared several times on Acoustic Treatment, which was like a sort of uh, a Jules Holland style program on YSTV. Um, they interviewed Jules. us a couple of times. So, you know, it's there if you're willing to look back through all the archives of 2006. Oh, that's quite a that's quite a dull for sure. Um, I don't think YSTV do Woodstock anymore, which sounds like a shame because it sounds pretty good. What what it used was to be done? Well, there was like several cameras. There's like four or five of them, like each being being operated by someone. And there was a vision mixer and a gallery, and you know, someone roaming around doing. We're here live at Woodstock, and now we're going to talk to this band. You know, like yeah. a pretend proper TV show, like like coverage of Glastonbury, but for five people. It's a pity they don't do that anymore. Yeah, it is a pity. But you sort of, when you were talking about your comedy music performances, you sort of used the university as like a as like your first sort of um, circuit in a way, because all the colleges have, you know, individual bars that you played at. Is there any... There's like is, six or seven different locations around the uni where you could do a gig. And it was like a mini circuit. Like you'd turn up and there'd be the same people that you see in all the bars. And then there'd be, for some reason people that you happen to see frequenting only one bar, like some students that just <laughs> stay in their college. It is like a, a little microcosm of the real world. Yeah, it's all, it's all the allegiances to the, to the uni bars. It's, it's a real thing. I, I, I never had that strong an allegiance to my college because I was in James College, you know, the Slytherin of York, and we never oh, yeah. had our own. But well, in, in my day, we never had our own bar. I believe what's happened since I've left, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, McHugh's, what used to be the Goodrick Bar, is now the James Bar, because Goodrick has now migrated to Heslington East and James yeah, has now conquered half of Goodrick and Vambra has conquered the other half. <laughs> is that what's happened? It's like you're making it sound like some sort of Roman conquest, which is quite topical for York. Um, but yeah, the, the university has undergone quite a lot of change. Like Goodrick, as you said, moved over to East. 
Um, and then, yeah, Vambra's sort of like moved a little bit and so has James. But it's, well, I, James say... in my day had no bar of its own. That was the one thing that made James stand out. Even Wentworth for postgrads, you know, like for older kids, they yeah. had their own bar. Theirs was really good, actually. Yeah, James has a bar, but it's more of an events bar now. So it's not open every night. It more just opens for when there's a uni event going on or a society running an event. Um, Is it the so James used to have? Um, well, we had a JCR. It, yeah, you, it, it's there still were has... gigs in there very rarely, but it wasn't a bar. You know, it had to be. You know, someone had to decide it was going to be used for something that evening. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like that 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 tradition sort of kept in a way because as i said it, it james college does have a bar and it also still has its jcr um but it's the james more... jcr was where my first ever gig was that's exciting was that was that experience of playing your first gig a nervous one were you were you nervous whether was that the first time you introduced doing these comedy musical things or was it more first time ever um so i was playing in front of an audience of my housemates who i'd met like 24 hours earlier and then some other people that had turned up and um I, I will never forget the, the guy that went on before me. I can't remember his name. Yes, I can. His name was Tad, uh, Tad. an old guy who was like about 10 years older than all of us. We had no idea what he was doing at uni. And um, he played two songs. One of them was called War, and the other one was called Mother. And both songs were exactly the same. They had no lyrics. It was just two chords, A minor, and the chord you get when you hold no fingers down at all. The first one was called War and the second one was called Mother and they sounded exactly the same. And he was, he set me up for a really good gig because all I had to do was be better than him. But were you not worried? Because I can imagine when you're trying to launch something new that's like quite out there because it, I think now it's more established and people really love that sort of you know quirky element to it and it's you know quite viscerally honest more so than, than some you know, more contemporary or pop music. When you were first kicking it off, though, was it not quite like a, oh, God, what if no one likes it? And what if it's no, just... No, I don't think so, because it, it's not as if I was do, performing it in front of royals or, you know, someone trying to score me out of 10, or it's not as if I had the slightest inkling that this was going to be the first of a career of gigs. I was just in front of my housemates, and I think I was drunk. So oh, it's, you, know, you don't, you don't realise until later it, that it was the first of an important thing you were doing. Um, it was just a, a fun way to spend the evening. I'd taken my guitar up to uni and I'd written three or four songs and I thought, well, great, I'll, I'll play them in an open mic night, why not? And you know, you don't realize until years later that, oh, that's where it all began. <laughs> I suppose I am putting a bit more of like emphasis on that was when it started. Let's let's really try and find out when it, we know what your experience Yeah, well, like when you're was. at uni or when you're, I suppose, anywhere in the world as a young person, like any single thing that you do ever could be the first time that your career began, you know, you, you don't know these things when they happen. They're not significant at the time. That's true. That's true. Um, I'm interested to talk about actually something you mentioned to me in, in the, the pre-interview, and it was about a song that you wrote called The Day I Met Suti. Um, and now, I how have... you pronounce that suggests that you're not familiar with Suti. No, I'm not at all. Can you give me a bit of context? Suti is a very, very famous little yellow glove puppet that's been on TV since the 50s. And um, I had a, a song um, about, well, the song is called The Day I Met Sooty. Um, it is a true story, but it didn't happen to me. It happened to my friend Mandy. Uh, and she told me the story about how she went to see the, um, uh, the Sooty show live. Yeah. Um, where they get, the, uh, in the interval, they call the kids on stage and they get to meet Sooty. And in her case, 
she gets to run forward and give Sooty a massive cuddle, which it turns out was a big mistake because she felt a human hand in there and it traumatized her. And she was telling me this story. I thought, this is the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard. So I said, with your permission, can I turn this into a song? And so I did. And so this song has been part of my life set for a while now. Um, and um, I've, I've played the song. In fact, the, the last time I visited the York Uni campus was 2012 and I played that song. That's awesome. So you, you took a bit of creative license using it as someone else's story and making it your own. Did, yeah, did I put you... it in first person, uh, but it's, I mean, apart from the fact that it's not me that it happened to, it is absolutely verbatim, word for word true. Man- Mandy will back me up on this. This is, that is how it happened. In fact, I, the way I... I wrote the song, she told me the story and I pissed myself laughing and then I got my phone out and said it to record. I was like, tell me that again, tell me that again. And then while she's telling the story, I then start playing this sort of creepy little guitar riff. And then when I got home, I listened back to it and like sort of changed her story just to make it rhyme. And that's all I did. But, you know, her story is still true. I love that. I love that. I'll actually let you in onto a little secret that I was going to try and do instead of what I'm going to ask next. But I actually tried to learn it on guitar and it's oh, genuine. Wow. Did you use it, my tab that I helpfully put on the website? Yes, yes. I, I did not use it. Yes. Yes, you officially have a user. Um, but I did notice a few differences between the live version and the tab version. Um, but apart from... But apart from that, yeah, I'm not here to criticize it. Um, but it was it was a little bit difficult to, to get used to the rhythm a little bit, but it, it was fun to play. But I'll tell you what it's based on, if we're going to get geeky about guitar. Um, you know the song Fixing a Hole by the Beatles? Uh, I, I don't think I've heard that one, but I'll have to check it out. Is, Is it a good band, the Beatles? I suggest you check them out. Oh, um, no, I've they... heard the Beatles, don't worry. <laughs> so the best way, there's, I figured out a way of playing Fixing a Hole where the thumb does the bass line and the three fingers do the, the harpsichord part with like steady yeah. it, 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 And it's a really fun style to play. Like it's quite a bit of, um, it's, it's like a pat your head, rub, rub your stomach thing yeah. where your three fingers are doing a really steady beat, just crotchets. Mm. And on top of that, your thumb is going do, 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 do. Like the thumb is doing everything, and the, like it's the opposite way around from what guitar should be. I loved that style, and I was like, I'm gonna rip that off. I'm gonna just turn that into my own riff. And I had that riff going around for ages, and then my friend Mandy made me laugh with that sooty story, and, and that, that's the story. That's, that's how I wrote that song, if, if you want to know. Could we hear a little bit of it for this? Would you be able to do that? I'm gonna get the guitar. Just a minute. Here we go. It sounded like you were having to exhume it. This is not the same guitar I used to play at uni. I've bought a new one since. Um, So if we're getting technical about how the guitar sounds, fixing a hole by the Beatles, you play with capo on the third fret and you go. Right, that is the song that I really liked, and I decided to completely rip it off with this. And so on and so on and so on. So uh, there you go. It's uh, I'm a rip-off merchant. I stole from the Beatles. Like, no one's ever stolen from the Beatles before. Oh, no, of course not. Would you be happy playing a bit of the song? Yeah, I'll, I'll play the song. Uh, I'm going to tilt this down so that you can... You really want to see those fingers. <laughs> ah, right, here we go. I must have been 
about five years old when I went to see the sooty show. My parents took me nearly every Christmas. We'd been going three years in a row. But this time was different because something happened that made me never go again. In the interval they ran a competition and somebody read out my name. I was going on stage to meet my favourite bear. Sooty, Sweep and Sue and Matthew Corbett were there. I remember clearly standing with my parents on stage and waiting in a queue. Not quite believing how cool it was to meet the real Sooty Sweep and Sue. I reached the front and he was waving at me, so yellow, cute and lovable. Poor Matthew Corbett, he tried to stop me, but Sooty looked so huggable. I ran out and grabbed and squeezed my favourite bear. How was I to know that I'd feel fingers in there? Sooty's not a real bear, he's just a human hand, a human hand, a human hand, a human hand. Awesome. I realized now that I'm proper self-conscious about, you know, the, the musical influences to that song, there's lots of other songs that I've ripped off of that. So the bit that goes, no, 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 is tax man's taken all my dough and left me in my stately home, blazing on a sunny after. It's really obvious once you, once you, you know, I'm busted now. There was a moment from the Kinks and the Beatles. Oh, it's fine. Everyone, everyone, everyone steals from everyone else. But there was a moment during that where I was like, "Oh my God, I'm getting sang a song by Jay Foreman," <laughs> and I was like, "What?" I want to see your version. I want to see what it looks like when someone learns the tab to see if I've got the. I, I will try. try and learn it for you. I will try and learn it for you, and I'll send you a link to a video. Oh, you mean you learned it already? You mean you? So all the other songs on my website, I've given the chords, but the Sooty one, like, is not. I mean, it's. It, I thought. Uniquely, I'd put the exact fingering for it, just in case anyone wants to use it. And I'm very glad you did. Thank you. I mean, I when I'm learning songs, um, I, I I seem to lean towards trying to copy it by ear from people's live performances, um, because usually that's where all the hard work's gone into. Um, and transcribing it to paper can sometimes accidentally. I mean, I'm not saying that it actually has, but it can sometimes end up with slight inaccuracies. But I mean, I mean which bits did I get wrong? That's that's what I want to know. <laughs> I'll, I'll have a look like, again and I'll try and It's my own it. song, but I still have to try and work hard to work out what I'm doing and write it down. Like one of the, I don't know if you find this, but if you play guitar in front of a mirror and look at what your hands are doing, it's like, oh, but I didn't ask it to do that. Like, oh, yeah. I'm not aware of it. So it, it's, it's very odd. fun to try and transcribe it. Even if it's your own thing, you don't actually know how you do it. Yeah. But thank you so much for uh, playing that. And when watching 
because a lot of people have watched the original video that's on YouTube of that performance, and it's basically you sat in a in a room with black background, so there's not much to really look at, but you, you're surrounded by by a group of people, and a lot of the comments. Yeah, it looks rather odd. It's uh, <laughs> so what that is. Someone that I knew had a little brother who was at York Uni long after I left, and he was studying in the TFTV department. And his, I think it was his final year project. He wanted to make a show that looked like a chat show. And he invited me on. He asked me some questions. And then at the end of it, I was to do a performance. And this was all done while friends of his were doing their exam at the same time. And people were being judged on how they were operating cameras and doing vision mixing and sound and everything else. And um, that's why it had this bizarre mixture of looking and feeling like a professional TV show, but with a small crowd of about eight or nine young people standing there all wearing yeah. their hoodies. It's very odd. It is quite odd to look at. Like you know, the oddest thing was, I mean, this bit's not on YouTube anymore, but then bef- just before I did the performance, like sat in that chair, he comes over with a microphone and he asked me some questions. And he made a, a big, what I think is a massive rookie mistake. He'd written some questions and he'd also written in advance what my answers should be. Oh, no. So it wasn't actually an interview. It was a, a script that I didn't know was a script. So I'll tell you what happened. He, um, the, the hilarious joke was that he was going to say to me, now we've got Jay Foreman here. And uh, Jay Foreman, you are, of course, the inventor of the, the famous Jay Foreman grill. And he gets out a George Foreman grill. And the joke is that he's got the wrong Foreman on. So oh. when he came on and said this, I, I did what I thought was the right thing to do. And I played along. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm particularly proud of this model here. You know, you can see a tuner on this one. And then he went, oh, no, hang on, stop, 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 cut, cut, cut. Um, Jay, it says here in my script that you're supposed to be angry and you disagree. <laughs> but that's not how First I would do all, it. First of all, that's not funny. I don't want to do that. And second of all, that's not how you do an interview. Like, by all means, if you want to do a funny script where your guest doesn't like what's going on, tell them. That was a rookie mistake in front yeah. of his lecturer as well. That's not what you want to do. Yeah. It, do, it does look very odd. And I mean, that must have been... Uh... A funny experience to be a part of, for sure. Um, yeah, I enjoyed, it. and I got um, I got a clip on uh, on my YouTube channel for it. Yeah, and that's exactly. why. By the way, as soon as the song finishes, there's a jaunty and then cut. <laughs> it's it's a guy in the sound booth going right, cue that, and then annoying sound hits. But when I was watching the performance, I mean, I don't know what I expected, but you know, positive or negative, but your vocals are actually really good. And I mean that in a positive way. Like, I, you know, you, you seem when... so surprised. <laughs> I'm rusty now because I've not, I haven't done a, like what with lockdown, I've not done a gig in a very long time. Yeah. But um, when you're gigging and when you're doing gigs like several times a week, you're, you're much more warmed up and you're much more sort of like your fingers get a lot tougher as well from oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, over yeah. and over again. Whereas nowadays I'm feeling a bit throaty and my, my fingers hurt. Oh, you're making me feel bad. <laughs> You're making me feel bad for making you perform that song now. No, 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 it's, it's good. I need to practice or I'll, you know, I'll forget the words and forget the chords. Yeah. I mean, I know exactly what you mean about like more performing, you know, helps in terms of those things because I'm in a band called Plastic People, which we're going to have a bit of a, a bit of a game. <laughs> Is it though? Is it though? <laughs> God, it's, it's, it was kind of embarrassing to begin with <laughs> saying it to people, but I've got, I've gotten over it. I mean, I guess you do. Um, but we were trying well, to record. Band name is not necessarily very important. I mean, take for example, arguably the most successful band in the world have a rather boring name, the Beatles. Doesn't yeah, really but, matter. Yeah, I, I, I know, but they're they're like a household name now. Like they're legends. Like we're... plastic people are next. <laughs> You're too kind. Um, but we were trying to record an album before, obviously, uh, lockdown hit, 
and um you know obviously that put a stop on that pretty quick but it's an intense process and i remember you mentioned before um this podcast episode that that you would you had in fact recorded was it a whole album with your band my my band with york uni uh, the love apples we spent a day in pig hut studios just outside york which i believe is um a studio set up by the people that were in shed seven york's most famous actual band i love shed seven and uh yeah they're great shed seven aren't they um uh and it's a very intense very very long day and i went properly mad at the end of it because you you spend the whole time like in one room recording your songs great fun though again another little well actually no does that count as a microcosm you know of pretending to be in a band because Whereas everything else that I've talked about until now happened on campus with these campus societies that you join for free. When we recorded our album, it actually was out in the real world and the studio engineers were not students. They were real people and we paid them a fair bit of money. So that doesn't count. No, I suppose that wouldn't count. Compared to my experiences, we're using the university studios and we're uh, our mixers, if you can call them that. They're very good, but they're not like professional mixers, um, are students. So we have that sort of like, we have that microcosm, we have that bubble of if we're making terrible music, they're not likely to tell us that it's terrible. <laughs> Whereas a professional, you know, I don't know, maybe a producer or, or an engineer might be like, you do this, it maybe make it sound a little bit better or maybe give it I a bit I don't remember advice. them interfering much. Um, but then, uh, I wasn't, hmm. you see, we had a band leader, uh, Dan, who was like the lead singer and the main songwriter was basically doing most of the running around and changing things and being in charge. And I think I spent most of my time like standing around, holding my bass and waiting. Oh, so it was one day. I don't remember too much of it, but it's not really relevant now. I think about it because it had nothing whatsoever to do with students. I suppose, I suppose not. I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about the comedy side of things and your stand-up. Um, again, in my research, when I was when I was looking up more stuff about yourself, um, I, I I found it notably interesting that you did a you supported uh, Dave Gorman on his um, PowerPoint presentation tour. Um, before we get into a little bit of detail about that, and I want to I want to sort of ask you bits about that. What is your opinion on PowerPoint? Because Jeff My Bezos. opinion on PowerPoint, do you mean yeah. as a piece of software compared with other presentation software or do you mean people who use PowerPoint to do comedy routines? A bit of, a bit of both because Jeff Bezos, the, uh, the head of Amazon, has recently just banned PowerPoints across it's his company. Banned PowerPoints. He's wow. banned well, PowerPoint. Dave Gorman, he wasn't necessarily the first, but he was definitely one of the best um, people at using media to help make his comedy much funnier. Whereas like, it's basically your average stand-up comedian would go on stage and say, so uh, I went to France the other day and you don't necessarily know it's true. Whereas Dave Gorman will say, I went to France the other day, click, here's my boarding pass. And that was a style of comedy that is now done so much. But yeah. when he was doing it, it was really new and interesting and weird and funny. And I think not just because I've supported him on tour, I genuinely think he's the best at combining comedy with PowerPoint. And he turned it into a full series. So like the show that he took on tour that I was the support act for called Dave Gorman's PowerPoint presentation, basically that became the basis for his TV show, Modern Life is Goodish, which was like a weekly hour long full PowerPoint show. And it yeah. was really, really funny. When you went on tour with Dave Gorman and you know, you're experiencing that world, is there a moment when you think like, yes, I've finally been accepted by like traditional media or is it a case of YouTube is in, in entirety of itself a different, you know, medium that 
has its own advantages, disadvantages, differences, and and it and it wasn't so much. When I was the, the tour support on Dave Gorman's show, that was in 2011, and I was by no means a YouTuber then. I think the word YouTuber didn't exist. There was YouTube, and you know you could go to this website, youtube.com, to watch funny videos that were normally shorter than two minutes, um, but it wasn't a career for, for anyone, I don't think. It certainly wasn't a career for me. In those days, I was, uh, I was a comedian, and uh, Dave Gorman brought me on his tour because he liked my live stuff. He had seen the stuff I'd made on YouTube, but I think that was a separate thing. Like that was never supposed to be my career. That was a, a, a hobby. And then yeah. YouTube became like, it sort of slowly overtook the live comedy stuff a lot more recently than that. So yeah, um, I don't think YouTube played that much of a role in landing me that job supporting Dave Gorman. I can understand that. Was it when you were supporting Dave Gorman, is there anything that really stood out about working with him or that experience that sort of aided in you know what you went on to do or things that you experienced even now like those were some of the best gigs i've ever done because you are when you do massive venues the sort that dave gorman gets to do you are extremely spoiled because like take for example like the best one uh no doubt a career highlight for me was playing the hammersmith apollo like even saying those words just feels a bit weird that is Um, fantastic you're in front of three thousand five hundred people and the room is specially designed that all 3,500 of them are somehow quite close to you. It's a really amazingly designed space where it's both intimate and huge. And you are so spoiled when you perform on a stage like that because the slightest twitch of an eyebrow and you'll get a big laugh because there's so many of them. And if every gig were like that, you wouldn't actually learn anything. You wouldn't improve because the best gigs for training and getting you better at being on stage are the gigs in the James JCR and the Goodrick Bar. (laughs) when you've got only five or six people and they're there and they're drunk and they're there to see their friends, not you. If yeah. you can make them laugh, it is a much harder job. It's much harder work doing well in those early gigs where you don't get paid than in the Hammersmith Apollo where all you have to do is raise an eyebrow. So it's, um, it's, a, it's an unusual experience because you do need training in front of big audiences, but I think it's more important that you get your training in very early on. And that's why a lot of stand-ups, they start doing well and then perhaps they get a bit lazy and sort of tail off. Yeah, plateau a bit. Yeah. I didn't I hadn't thought about whether, you know, that would actually be a massive influencing factor about doing the smaller gigs at university and things like that and how it will go on to develop. I mean, university or otherwise, every stand up comedian has to start with well, every performer of any kind has to start small and then, you know, grow their way up. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean that's an exciting story to be able to tell that you that you, you know, supported Dave Gorman at the yeah, I, I don't think I'm ever going to top the Hammersmith Apollo, not, not in a billion years. I hope you do. I hope you do. Um, but I would be amiss if I did not mention before we uh, close off this podcast, um, because I really wanted you to watch this film that I made. Um, because because I know you're a passionate filmmaker and you make, you know, you've made skits in the past and, you know, whether that's in university or afterwards. And... I mean, before we get into that, and before I get to, you know, show you the, the travesty that is this film that I made. Um, That's the spirit. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Where did your influence come from in terms of animation? Because you, you spoke a little bit about it on the student um, I've been asked this a few times. Like they say that my style looks a lot like Terry Gilliam from Monty Python. And that's a combination of I am a massive, massive Monty Python fan. And I love the Terry Gilliam cartoons. But it's also because um, whether I like it or not, my animations because they are crude and shit and because they use cutouts, they're going to look like Terry Gilliam. Um, Because I've 
learned that the best way that you can use the limited resources where if you can't animate properly, if you can't draw a brand new thing for every frame and you can't use flash properly, yeah. um, you just take cutouts and have them move around. And then where you compensate is you make sure that the movements are as perfectly timed as possible and as funny as possible. And that the movements tend to be quite short, sharp and violent and they have to match perfectly with these quick sound effects. Mm. So think for example, the, um, all of the titles music, uh, so the title sequences for Monty Python's Flying Circus, there are four of them, and what they've all got in common is they have bang, crash, like that. And I've copied that style partly on purpose and partly because Terry Gilliam and I had the same limitations. That's fair. I mean, I've also had those same limitations, and it's not so much Monty Python influenced, whilst there are probably little bits that might be similar in terms of that animation style, um, but it's, it's, I'll definitely say it's more Horrible Histories experienced, uh, influenced, if, if you're familiar with those. I'll give yeah, you... It's a great show. Yeah, I'll, so basically what we set out to do as a group was to make this comedy um, about a bunch of Greek gods who are communicating via Skype on these computers so i animated a computer desktop and like lots of web browsers and things and like different things happen um and basically it's hades who's come from the underworld and he's unleashing his wrath and basically the greek gods weren't aware that that, that it was that day that it was going to happen and it's the madness ensues and they have to try and figure out how to solve it basically um enough so of the preamble let's watch it if you're interested, yeah, if you're, if you're happy to go and watch it? it, it's eight minutes long. Go on then. Here we go. So I'll play from here and we'll play a few minutes. And then I'm enjoying can... that this takes place in uh, Windows XP land. <laughs> yes. <laughs> takes me right My darling, keep... even your worldly wisdom cannot predict what is to come. <laughs> Special Hermes delivery. Uh, yeah, I got one uh, end of the world package uh, for Hades. Uh, if you could just give me that digital signature. Let's open yeah, thank this you. bad boy up. It's better not pollute my oceans. Thank you would be nice. Right. This is fantastic. And what I love about it is you've taken what's obviously some limited resources where you're filming in lockdown and turned that into a virtue. That is a fantastic thing where you're unapologetic about this was filmed in different people's houses and you've managed to find a story that matches it absolutely perfectly. So yeah, that's, that's, that's very funny, very, I approve. That's very nice of you to say. I was, I was fully expecting it to be laden with criticism. I mean, as you say, like it was filmed, it was conceptualized, written, filmed and edited and then delivered in 96 hours. That's so. extremely impressive. That's fantastic work. So it was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun to do, though, but I was adamant that I was not going to act in it <laughs> because I hate acting. I'm terrible at it. Um, well, it's better to, I mean, if you've got limited resources, it's better to make something like that than to try and make Ben-Hur, but, you know, with everyone at home in lockdown. Yeah. Is there anything that you noticed from it that you might have criticized or is it? Well, I was tempted in the first five seconds to say, oh, hang on, the audio is not up to scratch. Maybe the audio could have been better. But then yeah. two seconds later, I realized, no, because of the medium, because it's supposed to be a bunch of Skype calls, that's fine. Because again, you've chosen this really good subject matter, which means that the shoddy camera uh, or shoddy audio <laughs> doesn't matter and is in fact a virtue. I get, yeah. I mean, unless I'm, maybe I'd have more to say if I did take the time to watch the whole thing and can make some judgments about pacing and storytelling. But from what little I saw... 
it, I, it, you get two thumbs up from me. Oh, that's that's lovely. <laughs> Jay giving me two thumbs up. That's brilliant. Does that remind you before, because we're going to be closing off this episode very, very shortly. Um, did it spark any memories of any projects that you've worked on that, that you know, perhaps had that sort of style or that sort of like fast turnaround? I remember that York Uni, as it was then called Cinematography Society, had a 48-hour challenge to write, make, and edit, and screen a film in just 48 hours. And I remember yeah. we, we watched them. Uh, we, we managed to get uh, City Screen um, opened up one of their cinemas to us in the morning so that we actually had them on a big screen in town, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, what they produced was kind of dog shit, but it didn't matter because you could see the fun they were having and you could see the stress they were under in such a short time. And it was like a real feat of, you know, it was an achievement that they made anything in the first place. It didn't really matter how bad they were. They were fun. They were good. Yeah. And I think if something has a good excuse to be a bit shoddy, such as it was only done in 48 hours or it was improvised or it was done while we were blindfolded, then it's, you know, you forgive those mistakes a lot easier than if someone says, this is my life's work. I'm really <laughs> proud of this. This is the best it could possibly be. What do you think? And then it's a lot harder to criticize or a lot harder to stomach. Yeah. Whereas if you've got limitations, great, good excuse. No, I was absolutely ready for some scathing criticisms, but you've genuinely surprised me with the, uh, with the, with the pleasant comments. Um, well, I've only seen like, you know, 30 seconds of it. I, 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 yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, I, I understand. Yeah. Is there any advice? I mean, really quick, like, you know, any tips or things that you've experienced? Is there any advice that you'd maybe give for any aspiring animators or, or artists or filmmakers that, that's, that's helped with your, with your sort of process or journey or whatever? Well, cheesy as it sounds, I guess the best thing I can say is just have a go. Just, just do it and get involved because you've got no excuse. If it was 1978 and you wanted to try out animating or filmmaking, you'd have to have rich parents and a massive rostrum camera. Whereas nowadays, you've got a phone, do it. No excuse. Fair enough. There you have. You heard it from Jay. Just get on and do it. Very excited to have had you on the show, Jay. It's been really good. Um, I hope you enjoyed it yourself. I did. It's been fun to relive the olden days. Absolutely. That's what we were going for. You've, you know, we've talked about URY. We've gone back down memory lane. And I've been able to you know, reveal my soul a bit with the filmmaker, the thing that I did. <laughs> and also oh, loved hearing that, uh, that very funny song that you played. It was very good. Thank you so much for that. Hopefully, right, well, I'll be off then. Thank you very much for having me. It was, a brilliant, it was a brilliant time. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you are looking to find more of this podcast, you can find all the highlights on YouTube as well as listen on Spotify and Apple Music. That's where you'll find us. Stay tuned until next week where we'll be joined by more fantastic guests. Thank you. Bye.